Welcome to Something for the Turbo, the new weekly podcast brought to you by Unfound, the global platform for the travel-loving cyclist. Welcome back to another episode of Something for the Turbo. I hope you all had a brilliant weekend out on the bike and you are all well wherever in the world you are listening. Please do subscribe to the podcast if you haven't yet. Leave a review, give us a rating and tell all your cycling friends as well. Now, I've had a few messages uh, and emails with regards to why I never uh, introduced myself. And to be honest with you, I never really thought (laughs) about introducing myself. But my name is Jules. I am the host of the Something for the Turbo podcast. I am the founder of Unfound, which is a global community of cyclists. You can find us at www.unfound.cc or you can download the Unfound app from google play or the app store join our global community it's free to register and you can share your rides and photos and stories and communicate with cyclists from all around the world anyway that's enough about me today i was delighted to be joined by ian field who is the five times british cyclocross champion and we discuss his career to date really i really enjoyed catching up with ian he's a thoroughly nice guy we discuss his journey from schoolboy cyclist to being a part of the british cycling academy as a mountain biker becoming an elite mountain biker, cyclocross, his journey to racing cyclocross in Belgium, and just a real fascinating insight into the incredible world that is cyclocross racing in Belgium. And we discuss many things. We discuss Walt Van Aert and Matthew Van Der Poel and Toon Arts and Tom Pigott and different approaches to coaching and loads more. So without further ado, let me bring you in. Ian, thank you very much for joining us. How are you? I'm really good, thank you. Thanks very much for having me. How's your summer been? Has it been okay given the mad world that we're currently living in yeah it's been yeah I think it would have been a strange one for me anyway and then along with covid kind of uh yeah really strange indeed but uh I feel like I've kind of coped as best as I can and yeah hopefully there's some light at the end of the tunnel now yeah we're all looking for light at the end of the tunnel so so why would it have been a strange one anyway what what's um what's been going on so at the end of last season, my contract with my last team came to an end. And so um, I kind of had a bit of a decision to make on, on where to go, really, and whether it was like pursuing another kind of pro contract or go down the route, which I'd been eyeing up for a while. And that was launching my own coaching business and kind yeah. of race a bit more, a bit more for fun, really. And that's that's what I ended up doing. And in when was this around February, March? March time I yeah kind of jumped two feet into to launching Veld coaching and yeah it took a lot more time than I thought it was going to but uh yeah so yeah kind of a, a bit of a strange summer for me but uh yeah quite a that in February and then the world locked down and five weeks later pretty much <laughs> yeah I think if you can plan to launch a business then don't do it five weeks before a world pandemic <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Okay, cool. Well, we'll we'll come on to Veld in due course, but why don't we go, I suppose, back to the beginning. You started riding bikes at a relatively young age. Were you 12 when you got into it? Yeah. So I started racing when I was 12, but had been riding since i was like three or four years old so yeah relatively young relatively young is it in the family uh no (laughs) No, you just fell in love with riding bikes uh well it's a love of riding bikes but normally bikes with motors so my Ah. was big into motorbike racing and was actually a, a grass track um national champion so we kind of always thought that yeah me and my brother would get into 
motorbike racing and it looked like we were going down that route and then kind of our, our parents kind of pushed us into cycle racing because it was uh, cheaper but as they later discovered it turned out to be way more expensive <laughs> yeah, i'm sure i'm sure yeah cool and th- I, did i read somewhere that you actually started racing for for a school team is that right yeah, yeah it is so yeah i think yeah me and my brother just grew up kind of racing around the local woods on our yeah first of all bmx's and then like when mountain bikes came more popular we got mountain bikes and and just kind of built trails and little jumps and red mb uk every month and that kind of thing and literally just went from there for the love of riding my bike and then i went to secondary school and yeah it was well i guess i must have started in september and a few weeks later a guy in my class did like a school assembly on cyclocross which obviously no one had ever heard of (laughs) and was putting together a school team to compete at the british schools association championships so he held like a a school trial as it were um on saturday morning around the school fields and yeah I, I was obviously into riding bikes and so I went along and it literally went from there that's amazing isn't it because I read that and I thought there's not many I've never really heard of a school having a, a cycling team and actually it probably lends quite well to cyclocross doesn't it I'm surprised there's not more of it yeah I mean it was it was perfect like we yeah I went to a, f- a fairly good um secondary school which had lots of ground and and what have you and even a woods next to it so in actual fact setting up a little cyclocross course was dead easy and yeah like yeah we obviously <laughs> found a national champion through it but first and foremost it it gave kind of like i think three three to five of us maybe turned up and so i think everyone's still kind of riding a bike in in one form or another so yeah it just gave that gave an opportunity to people to to ride their bikes at school which was pretty cool have a lot of fun along the way i'm sure and yeah the five of you that three to five of you you still all still in contact all still riding so uh, the guy that got me into it is yeah still my best friend so yeah still very much in contact with him we live close to each other um i actually coach him now and um we ride together a fair bit when we can so yeah we see each other a lot and then the others have kind of spread out across the uk but every so often kind of get a message or like a bit of kudos on strava or something and you see what they've been up to so yeah they're still riding and yeah, kind of. I think everyone pretty much stayed riding in some form or another. Wicked, what a cool story. So you obviously started r- racing at school and then did you join a club? How did it progress and how did you... Because you, you started racing mountain bikes, is that right? Was that your sort of original focus and then got back onto cross or how did that happen? Yeah, so originally we completed that first like cyclocross season. We only did a very small local, local stuff and then obviously it got around to the following summer and yeah then no cyclocross so the next best thing was a local mountain bike series and so we went along to that and yeah I was I think I was still like in the sprog category which was like under 12 at that time and I ended up winning that and uh, yeah kind of went from there my friend from school already joined uh, a club called Dartford Wheelers and so I just I just joined the same club so we could race together and it literally went from there like up to doing kind of London leagues week in week out because at the time I was still playing football at quite a high standard and so I only used to race my bike on a Saturday and play football on a Sunday. 
And then wow. when I got to like 13, 14, I made the decision to to go kind of yeah fully into cycling and I ended up stop stop playing football and so I could race on a Sunday. Was it was it clear at that age that obviously you had something that maybe some of your friends didn't have? You're naturally sort of a better athlete or stronger athlete or that came further down the line i think straight away it was fairly obvious that i was good but at the time i didn't really know why i was good if you know what i mean like very very poor and so it was kind of one of them the only reason i knew i was good was because very often i would turn up and i'd be first or second at a race so and my friend who'd obviously been racing a lot longer kind of would say oh that guy's like hasn't been beaten for like three years as you, as you kind of used to get at that age like you yeah, yeah. kind of stand out 10 11 12 year olds who yeah had never been beaten kind of thing and then i'd rocked up and beaten them and it was like that doesn't happen <laughs> so it kind of yeah that was the reason like i thought maybe perhaps i was quite good at it and fundamentally i really enjoyed it the football i was really struggling with like the team element that i could have a really good game and the team could still lose <laughs> i'm not a very like i wouldn't say i'm a bad loser but i don't like losing so i like the cycling thing that if i lost it was nine times out of ten my fault and like all down to me. that accountability bit right yeah, absolutely so yeah it kind of yeah and then kind of a local coach for the London League Cyclocross would set up yeah. a youth team every year and I got onto that and then through their like funding they would take us to the regional championships national regional championships every year and um, that gave an opportunity to race at kind of like a national level so finally race kind of everyone in the country really and those races for me went really well and so then he was like well I think you should do the national champs and then yeah I think turned up to my first ever national champs got gridded like sixth or seventh row and rode through to like sixth I think it was and so then like the coach was like right next year you need to do the full series and yeah you need to kind of race at a national level because yeah that's where that's where you need to be really and so yeah the following year was uh full national trophy series um and national champ what, what kind of age are you here just to get so I get my bearings so i would have been, you finished school by this point no i would have been 15 at this point oh wow okay so yeah i would have been 15 and it's really funny like around my my racing year was a super strong year that um included like ian bibby at the time there was a guy called ian leg who was really good um ian stannard and then the standout was a guy called sammy cotton who no longer races but he was kind of standout yeah kind of at that age so it was a really strong strong years to be to be racing so there was some good quality kind of national national racing for us and then and then what what you, you had a bit of a choice to make didn't you in terms of which which sort of avenue you you pursued as you finished school over the next few years or yeah so then I would have moved up to kind of junior level racing and then that was obviously the opportunity to try out kind of road racing really for the first time because up until that age you're not allowed to race on the open roads and so you're just like circuit racing which I didn't <laughs> I didn't really enjoy coming from like a mountain bike background kind of racing around uh, it would have been Eastway at the time or a Hillingdon kind yeah. of fundamentally I didn't really like enjoy the concept of just riding around w- with a bunch of other people and then having a little sprint at the end because on restricted gearing it was hard to kind of get away and 
and really like do that individual racing that I enjoyed. So yeah, first year junior, I kind of had a dabble on the road and did like a couple of the national road series and they went okay. And then as a second year junior, I did both the national mountain bike series and the national road series. And I ended up second overall in the national road series to a guy called Geraint Thomas. I don't know what he's gone on to do. Um, Very good. And then I won the mountain bike series. So yes, at the end of junior, I kind of had a bit of a which way to go in terms of road and mountain biking. Yeah. And it all boiled down to really the British cycling systems in place at the time. And they had a mountain bike route and they had a road and track route. But obviously, the road and track route was very heavy on the track side of things. Oh, right. Okay. So at that time, it would have been like Cav, Matt Bramia, uh, Garrett Thomas, kind of that era. And. Give me an idea. What what kind of year was this? Was this leading up to 2012 London Olympics? Yes. So this yes. was actually before that. So this would have been like 2005. Okay. So before that. Okay. But with the focus, probably, they would, yeah. Yeah. The focus on 2012. Yeah. Okay. And I'd never ridden track. So I felt as though that was a big kind of gamble to go down that route, especially how cutthroat kind of the british cycling systems can be like if i hadn't got up to speed on the track straight away i'd have been i'd have been off like within a year so i ended up going down the mountain bike route basically and following kind of the mountain bike academy which they had set up at that time uh which was based near manchester and run by simon burney who ended up having like a a major impact on my career it was also looked after a little bit by nick craig who has obviously yeah still racing and, and has a massive impact kind of on my career as well and those like three or four years on the academy were were invaluable really in kind of learning how to be how to be a pro really how to be an athlete yeah looking yeah. after yourself nutrition yeah. all those you had access to all the coaches and what was that like it must have been an incredible learning experience it was it was it was yeah kind of three years of basically being taught by the best really yeah and getting to travel the world i mean we went to worlds in like new zealand yeah raced kind of all over europe and did training camps with the road guys and yeah really yeah really got to experience that kind of like pro athlete living at 18 years of age which yeah was um yeah really lucky really yeah and, and is that where you kind of understood the or you learned the sort of discipline required to be successful at that level just being surrounded by other elite athletes as well yeah i think you had access to all obviously like the the testing at british cycling in terms of performance testing and the coaching and there was never if you had a question there was always someone who could answer it and so like i always say it was like me going to my like cycling university as it were yeah, exactly yeah, that's what it sounds like yeah it was yeah we had nutritionists like so he's gone on to be reasonably famous in the cycling world nigel mitchell who worked for team sky he's now with EFF nation yeah. so yeah we got to work with some pretty incredible people in the sport who have kind of gone on to do more since then even and yeah like i say it was just a massive like three years of of learning as much as i could really cool and during that time you were just were you still doing cross as well or was it just mountain bike big focus on mountain bike it, the big focus was mountain biking but luckily simon bernie was massively into cross and so always wanted us to do a little bit of cross if we wanted to and i obviously always wanted to so we still would do the odd world cup I think I pretty much did world championships every year I was on academy and I would 
dues, like some some national trophies along the way. And yeah, even did kind of a Christmas out in Belgium when when I got the opportunity. So yeah, still did a lot of cross. Okay. And was there a particular focus with the British, so with the academy? Were you focusing for, was it the Olympics or was it something particular or is it just a, a development stage and how does what happens at the end of it um so it was very much geared towards london 2012 okay and everything was based around getting riders to there but unfortunately um because i was taken on really young obviously so we went on as 18 year olds and it wasn't long after that beijing happened and so i'd been on the academy kind of three years by the time i got to beijing and the problem with british cycling was there was there was funding for the mountain biking because obviously the academy happened and and everything like that but there wasn't the the same cash flow as for the track and road and so a big thing is qualifying places for the mountain bike slots at olympics yeah and this just didn't seem to happen for one reason or another and so we always end up with only like one place at the olympics and at the time liam colleen was like the standout mountain biker in this country and he was like three or four years older than us and so it was kind of seen as like yeah we weren't really ever gonna like go if you know what i mean unless they concentrated on trying to get more than one space and that didn't seem to be happening well, at the time as well given the amount of medals on offer on the track and yeah. just how successful the british team was right it, it it's probably you could probably understand their perspective as well a little bit or as, as frustrating as it was for you Absolutely, yeah. As as frustrating as it is, and and people love to slag British cycling off for this, but fundamentally, if if I was in charge and I had a budget and there were a load of medals on the track which I could control the performance of down yeah, to far more quantifiable, yeah, yeah, minute fraction of a second compared to. Yeah a random mountain biker racing around a rocky field in Essex. I know which one I'd put my money behind. So, And when you're judged on the medals you bring home as well, right? You can understand it. Absolutely. Yeah, I can completely understand it, but at the time, frustrating as an athlete a little bit. Oh, hugely, yeah, massively frustrating. So, so your time there sort of came came to an end. How did that happen, and, and was it a frustrating time for you as an athlete? Um. A little bit kind of it's harsh like so for the first kind of like two or three years on the academy you were constantly being told like oh you're still developing like cyclists don't peak until they're kind of like 28 to 30 kind of thing and then Simon Burney left and went on to manage a professional mountain bike team and and he was your key sponsor wasn't he really yeah Yeah, was he yeah uh kind of yeah the real boss of the academy and really kind of took me under his wing kind of thing and then a new guy took over phil dixon um and things changed a little bit and i didn't particularly enjoy my my final year on it basically and then at 23 it was kind of like oh yeah you're no longer developing you're you're not good enough and it's like well wait i've been told all along yeah so it was a bit of an odd ending like i guess it's like probably like a any relationship like the ending's always a bit weird and and frustrating for one side or another and so that came to an end and then i kind of had the choice of what do i do now kind of thing because i felt as though at 23 i hadn't really i'd had like quite a few injuries my time on academy like a knee operation etc and i felt as though i hadn't really kind of shown 
what I could do really. Um, I'd had moments where I'd done really, yeah, really good races and really good, like kind of standout performances, but it, yeah, hadn't really, yeah, ticked all the boxes for myself. And so I went on to race for another summer on the mountain bike for Bike in Cyprus, which was a professional uh, Cypriot mountain bike team, actually, and got to do all the World Cups and stuff with them, which was really cool. But I think that was a, that was a great summer for me because it made me realise that maybe that's not what I wanted to do in the end. So what the mountain biking? Yeah, I think yeah. after maybe four years of kind of doing the doing the World Cups, I realised that perhaps that wasn't for me. And so come that September, I went round to Simon Burney's house and was like, we had a bit of a meeting and he ended up just picking up the phone to Pete Hargrove, obviously of Hargrove Cycles, and basically asked him if I could have a ride for that winter on the cross. And that's where that relationship started, which yeah went on to be oh how many years god like nearly 10 years probably riding for hargroves amazing and what an incredible transition that was you've obviously gone although at 23 years old we all think we're sort of we know everything and we're quite experienced but still relatively young you've got the full british cycling support network behind you to then doing a summer for a cypriot team like a massive transition in your life really yeah i think yeah like you said about little annie anecdotes and and stories uh, my first ever trip out to cyprus on my own so basically uh, simon set me up with his team they'd had a good relationship with british cycling in the past and taken riders before so i jumped on a plane to to go out there and meet them and get my bikes and kit and do some racing out there early season um so it's the first trip kind of on my own as like and and rather strangely although i'd been traveling for years and years i was never traveling on my own you're always kind of traveling with a team manager and you're not even really allowed to look after your own passport kind of thing like you treat it as like a bit of a kid still school kid almost still yeah 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 so yeah that first flight out to cyprus uh was a bit scary and then uh we we've nearly got there and then there's an announcement for for a doctor um over the tannoy uh, don't really think anything of it and then all of a sudden they're telling us um, we got to make an emergency landing in Turkey and our pilot had died. What? Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, luckily they have obviously, and I guess this is why they have two pilots. Yeah, so our pilot had died mid-flight from a heart attack and we ended up landing in Turkey. And at the time, Cyprus and Turkey like didn't really get on and I think it's still kind of a bit raw now. And at the time, I think if you'd been to Turkey, you weren't then allowed into southern Cyprus for like a year or something. And so we made BBC kind of national news back here for being like the first people, I think, to to be like exempt from this because we'd made an emergency landed in Turkey and then we took off the next day and finished our flight. So yeah, that was an interesting first trip. Yeah, what a mad story. I, yeah. I feel bad for laughing at the poor pilot. <laughs> Tragic, tragic but yeah yeah that was uh yeah interesting time so uh, and i hear cyprus there's some incredible cycling there right oh amazing yeah like so yeah. the point of the mountain bike team was to really promote cyprus as a cycling destination and yeah it was it was amazing like i got two weeks out there training from larnaca um up into kind of the trudos mountains and yeah some really cool like road and mountain biking out there it's just yeah, it's a really good, like good place to go and ride your bike, but uh, no one thinks of going there really, which is unfortunate for them. It's strange. I've heard that a few times now. Another another place to add to the ever growing list of places to go and cycle. Really, yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. 
So you made the decision, you moved to cyclocross. I, I mean, how did that progress? Talk us through that experience. I mean, I mean, the irony being that you left British cycling where you were sort of focusing on, on London 2012 and 2012 was when you won your first national title yeah. in cyclocross. It's sort of just when you were peaking, exactly when they said you would be. But yeah. talk us through the, the journey to that. Um, so, yeah, that first winter I signed up with Hargroves and the deal was kind of like bike kit expenses and kind of do what I wanted, really. So I did the national series early races and then made the decision to obviously cross the homeland in Belgium I packed up my Renault Clio and uh, moved there so took the took the like freedom of not being on the academy anymore to kind of do what I wanted to do and yeah got as many wheels and and spare bikes as I could into my Clio and my mum told me that when I was down to my last 50 quid I should come home so yeah off I went and I I lived in Belgium that winter with with the Wymans um down in Tiltwinger in one of the houses by Tim and Joss the famous kind of English couple out there with with the houses and just got fully fully involved in the Belgian racing life and doing like kind of prestiges and did some B crosses as well that season just to get my kind of foot in the door of like the local racing scene and and did a few little local kind of to the house world cups and stuff like that and then kind of got the bug for it really and yeah then on and off for the next seven years was kind of like living living and breathing like the Belgian the Belgian style of racing living there well tell us about that transition and tell us about that Belgian scene now having come from racing cross in the UK we're still a minority sport here right really yeah um even within cycling to, to going to Belgium where it's like part of the DNA right it's, it's massive yeah talk us through it's like landing in there and just being like Jesus this is this is serious this is big like well that must have been brilliant you must have been like there are other people that love the sport I love <laughs> and lots of them <laughs> yeah it's so I'd obviously had like small tasters along the way of doing world cups and that but getting to do kind of the yeah non-world cups like some of them are even bigger than like the actual world cups like the Koppenberg and Zonhoven and kind of the ones that like have a real like almost cult following it's yeah like turning up and racing in front of kind of yeah 30 40,000 people at a weekend was I think I've, I've always described it as like the closest I'll get to being a premiership footballer kind of the real famous Zonhoven sand um like amphitheater that they've got there like when you drop into there on the first lap the noise is just incredible like just like yeah hairs on the back of your neck standing up kind of scenario and where you keep going back and basically at the time I was really the only English male riding um yeah and the Belgians seem to have a bit of a love for kind of like GB in the UK I don't know if it's something like nostalgic about the war or something I don't know what it is but they seem to really like us and uh, a lot of people just seem to like got behind me and and like it was yeah, you know, that crazy englishman out there on your own right yeah, I suppose yeah. there's a bit of that about it <laughs> yeah and so before long like you're getting like a little bit of a little bit of a following and uh, every race there's like definitely a group of people who are cheering for you and then like you do like a couple of interviews or something so people find out where where you're where you're living out there and so the locals really get behind you and like yeah a group of lads from from the town that 
I was staying in towards the end there, like made like a banner and desperately trying to get on TV and stuff. And it just got like pretty surreal, really, that, yeah, you end up with a bit of like a, a bit of a cult following yourself in them. Yeah, it's crazy. We said offline, isn't it? It's like you're probably a household name in Belgium, whereas even, you know, cycling over here in your home country, probably less so. It's just bizarre. Yeah, yeah. Like, so I think probably like, yeah, my most famous moment in Belgium was like leading the Koppenberg for a few laps one year. And from that moment on, like, yeah, the, the number of people where I'd been on TV for like 20 minutes and obviously got spoken about by the commentators and that, like, I would turn up to races for the next kind of few months and it'd be like oh Koppenberg Koppenberg and you're like yeah that's me like and even now even last year I drove into the Koppenberg and like you you have to like show your passes to get in and stuff and like as soon as I showed my pass the guy was like oh Ian Field and like they still remember like I think that was like 2014 and they're still banging on about it which yeah, which is brilliant. Cool. Yeah, it's cool. And for people, anyone listening that hasn't seen on YouTube or TV what these big Belgian cross events are like, G- give them a bit of an overview. I mean, there's like party tents and people are drinking and the atmosphere, is in- it seems incredible, right? Yeah. So like I said, you normally get like, yeah, probably 20 to 40,000 depending on the yeah depending on the race and they just have these massive beer tents which are kind of like discos um in a cow field (laughs) and i just said probably like 50 percent of the people that go to the race don't know who wins the race like they will literally just go there drink themselves silly dance themselves silly and if they see a bike rider go past then they'll shout but fundamentally they're for a party and a good time and so you just end up with this crazy atmosphere of like just these massive parties going off and then but alongside that the other 50 percent are mad like almost like football hooligan standard fans of riding oh, really and okay they have all like their supporters club they've got their flags they've got their scarves like they're singing their songs and they really back like a certain rider and you end up with yeah. like yeah like fan clubs going to races and they'll move around as one almost and yeah it's it's really yeah you just gotta go there and experience it it's just a massive kind of weird party in a muddy field basically yeah amazing it sounds very cool indeed and and talk us through i mean we couldn't do this podcast without mentioning uh walt van art and matthew van der Poel, given the success they're having and how they've sort of catapulted to just general public consciousness what makes them such incredible athletes what, what are your experiences of them both both of them actually like seem to be really nice guys like so obviously I was there for quite a few years and yeah eventually like the riders realize like you're there to stay you're there to race kind of thing and what so they will say hi and and nod and what have you and still like there would be some that wouldn't and uh nine times out of ten those weren't the best guys they were kind of the guys that sometimes I'd get the better of and so maybe they had their bit of a chip on their shoulder about that yeah but both of them like would always say hello would always nod would always like acknowledge you like existing which yeah might not sound like that cool but like I I don't think they have to be like that they like yeah they obviously don't need kind of need to be that friendly and they both seem super nice people and I think it's been great for cross to really showcase how good some of the riders are that race cross yeah and it's not just like a a weird token Belgian thing where 
the best aren't that good if you know what i mean yeah the best are actually really bloody good bike riders so yeah that's incredible engines right i mean it's just amazing what they've achieved already and they're still both relatively young right yeah both crazy young still and i think like i wrote a blog about it on my website and it's like why everyone should race cyclocross and it just makes you such a good bike rider like all the all the details are in there but it just gives you like this like roundedness as a bike rider which you're seeing with Woot right now like he can sprint he can climb like he's super strong on the flat like i think that's what cross makes you is just a well-rounded bike rider yeah well we'll put the link to your website and uh, that blog particularly in the show notes so go, go check that out and have a read of that and i, I think you're right it's, it's great it's great for the sport and i think it's, it's, it's bigger than that i think it's just great for cycling because they this kind of breadth of diversity in terms of competing in a number of different disciplines it knocks down some of the the sort of historic barriers i suppose to road racing and stuff like that it just means that just get on your bike and race and enjoy it really it doesn't matter what you're doing and where you are no exactly and i think like a lot of people are like oh will they stick with cross and I don't know what they're going to do, but I know Matthew's going to certainly stick around and, and race mountain bikes and cross for, for a while. I don't know what Walt will do after the tour, especially, but I really, really hope they stay in cross because we've seen it before with guys who like Lars Boom and Stibby are like two names in particular who made their name through cross, went to the road and kind of had the same, almost the same impact as like Matthew and Woot are having. Yeah. Uh, and then they've kind of like, whether it's their decision or the team's decision, like moved away from cross. And I can't help but feel that they lost something by not racing cross. And you've seen, you saw it with both of them. I think they both realized they were missing something by not racing cross. And so Stibby did a lot more cross last season than he has for a while and came out flying at the beginning of this season on the road. And Lars tried to kind of resurrect his career a little bit by like doing some cross last winter and the winter before at, I think it was a little bit too late. I think they they kind of lose that like real explosiveness and I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just the intensity of training through the winter that works uh, one reason or another. I think they just, yeah, as soon as they kind of gave up with the cross, I think, I think it did affect their road. So I hope both of them stay in, stay in and do cross for that reason. Yeah, And and do we think we'll see Tom Pickott doing the same as well? I would have thought so. I think hopefully the next generation of riders like Tom will realise the benefits of sticking with cross and sticking with mixing things up and and being a well-rounded bike rider and not kind of... Yeah, a lot of people say, oh, I'm going to now concentrate on the road and and think their road results will, will increase by just almost saying that they're concentrating on it. But fundamentally it's what you do on the bike so hopefully he stays with it as well i think i think he would stay with cross until he wins like that elite world title which could be a while it could be next year you never know with him so hopefully yeah hopefully he sticks with it as well yeah and it must be more fun racing cross discipline as well i know know there's pressures from teams and sponsors and the commercial side of things but just being able to compete mountain bike cross and road surely you want to do that as long as possible if you can I would have thought so. I mean, just, yeah, a change is as good as a fresh start or a break kind of thing. So, yeah, just having that option of like going to your garage one morning and you're maybe not feeling a long road ride. And so you just jump on your mountain bike and go go ride some trails all day. And just having that option as a bike rider is is pretty damn cool. And I think it just keeps things fresh. It keeps keeps you motivated. Like if perhaps... You're not having the greatest time on the road. Like these boys can literally just 
get their mountain bike out and go and do a world cup like and compete at the highest level it's it's pretty amazing like kind of the options they have and and, and it must be why kind of yeah, they're so motivated, like almost twenty four seven. And then with some of the sort of gravel races coming on, you look at um, what EF Education have done. I think that's great for the diversification of the sport as well. And and it's as a as a sort of spectator or a fan, it's it's I, I really enjoy seeing pros take on different things as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think pros can often be like. I don't know, like almost seen as like robots and just like a bit boring. But I think like you say, EF education, especially like Lachlan Morton doing what he does, is just showing yeah. like they're just kids that grew up riding their bikes who love riding their bikes. And like the fact that they were really good and got to do it as their job is almost like a side note. Like fundamentally, they're just cyclists that love riding their bikes. And I think that's Lachlan all over. He just loves riding his bike. Like the whole everesting thing where he did it one weekend like on like just on a whim and then realized like he'd done it incorrectly and so it's just like oh i'll do it next weekend it's just like he just loves riding his bike it's just yeah it's just that relatability right i think everyone feels that they're a cyclist no matter what their level of talent and ability but when you see someone who so, loves their, riding their bike so much or doing different things, I think everyone can relate to that playfulness that, or that escapism they get from cycling, from the day-to-day work or parenting or whatever, be it a pro or, or just you know the weekend warrior. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's like Lachlan just must love going out in the morning on his bike and not coming back till it gets dark kind of thing. And uh, I think there'll be a lot of weekend warriors who would do that if they didn't have a (laughs) didn't have a job during the week. So I think, yeah, I think that sums it up really well, actually, just that escapism and that kind of. Yeah, for a lot of people, a bike is kind of that real first sense of freedom as a kid, really, because there's only so far you can get on your feet far from the house and suddenly you can get like double triple that distance in the same amount of time on a bike so i think that's definitely exploring yeah yeah. i got into it it was like places that felt a long way away suddenly were in reach on my bike so yeah um, yeah yeah. getting lost along the way yeah i want to to talk in terms of how how you because you started coaching well you qualified quite a few years ago didn't you and obviously you set up the business more recently but just going back to to your race career Five British titles, that's right, isn't it? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Five British titles. I mean, what, what? Obviously, the Koppenberg is you're very well known in Belgium for for that sort of breakaway. But what what are your career highlights or what um, to date? What were your favourite races? What what are the standout days for you? I think the standout day has to be uh, the Milton Keynes World Cup, which yeah. yeah, to this day is still the only World Cup to take place in the UK. Is pretty damn special in itself but I obviously knew about it for a while and so really targeted it that season and the thing when you have a goal like that it's like you put so much work into it and and you do it over the years for different varying events and sometimes it comes off and sometimes it doesn't but this felt like <laughs> without being like yeah two kind of one amazing result it was like that one moment kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Really was like, yeah, that one opportunity kind of thing to showcase my skills in front of a UK crowd on on the highest level, really. And I managed to kind of pull it off with with a twelfth place in front of a home crowd. And and the way the race panned out, kind of for forty minutes or so, it was kind of like in one line a little bit, and and the gaps were pretty small to the to the lead of the race. And so the way people were watching it, it was like the leaders would go past, and I was kind of just on the coattails kind of thing for for a lot of the race. And yeah. I think that was a massive moment 
for me and kind of crossing the UK, having all those people at a cross race and, and actually pulling off kind of one of my best World Cup results in front of them was yeah that was that has to be probably yeah the best day so far cool and then yeah i ended up with actually ended up topping the 12th place uh with an 11th place in in iowa in in america which was pretty cool so sprinting it out for kind of a top 10 at a world cup was was really special kind of i think i was with tune arts most of that race uh, towards the end there so it's pretty cool to i've yeah. like that generation come through and, and gradually overtake me kind of thing so it's good to it's good to have those moments and, and race against those guys and now see what they're doing um at the head of the races so yeah another race w- would be the american races like getting to race in vegas was always a really special experience because it was so odd yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and so yeah i think yeah i did like a couple of started a couple of seasons out in america on the east coast they were pretty cool doing all the like the famous races that they have on the east coast to start off their season and racing against kind of the big names in america but for once racing for the win which was nice so um yeah i think all of those things go down as being pretty special in belgium for me koppenberg was always special because it suited kind of the type of racer i was zonhoven was always good for me so yeah i think those those races were really really special to me you mentioned what the the type of racer you you were what how would you describe yourself as as an athlete in terms of your power curve your, your abilities I'm a bit of kind of like a, yeah, kind of a bit of a classics, like punchy climbs kind of rider, like not a massive FTP, but it's pretty good in terms of what's per kilo. Um, and I'm pretty explosive for my for my weight. So anything pretty short and steep, especially like the Koppenberg that I, w- I would do well on. And in terms of cyclocross, it was kind of like when things were super slippy and tricky, then I would i would be good so kind of growing up in the uk we we have that like special kind of mud in a lot of places which goes slimy and super slippy and so that's what i grew up riding and i think that's what i ended up being good at, at racing on so yeah not not so good on like the pure power courses that are super fast where bigger guys could could do well i think i only weigh like 64 kilos so not the biggest of riders but yeah, anything punchy, elevation gain, um, I, I was good at. And throughout your career, obviously you started with British cycling. You, you've had multiple, I'm sure, different coaches and had exposure to multiple different methodologies. And you qualified as a, as a coach in 2012. Is that right? When did you start coaching people and what led you to setting up Bell? So I came into contact with Dan Fleeman of Dig Deep Coaching and his wife, Sarah Fleeman. And I was helping out with a women's road team at the time uh, that she was on. And apparently like the way I was talking, she was like, oh my God, like I've got to put him in contact with Dan because they're both as geeky as one another. So we ended up like getting put in contact and yeah, it turns out we were both as geeky as one another when it turns to numbers and training and and what have you so i ended up doing my abcc coaching qualification in 2012 and i ended up helping out and working for for dig deep for a number of years um as one of their coaches for me i didn't really have the time to set up my my own business when i was racing kind of 24 7 so it was easy to coach for them and it was really good experience in terms of kind of like yeah getting clients and and being able to yeah get feedback from from dan and steven at dig deep and kind of 
set my way on my journey of coaching really which I've done ever since and then obviously the time came for me to to set up my own venture in terms of veiled coaching and that's gone from strength to strength this summer really and I really really enjoyed departing that knowledge yeah and all that experience right all, all everything you've learned over those years you can now sort of work with people and and sort of pass that on which must be really satisfying to do yeah and I think you hit the nail on the head it's like getting to work with so many coaches over the years like you just get exposed to to different methodologies and like different way like like different people kind of management which I think is a massive thing in coaching I don't think honestly like there's too much difference between like certain sessions that different people set but it's the way that you give the feedback it's the it's the reasoning behind why you give something to someone like if they if they 100% believe in it then they're going to perform it to a better level and therefore get better results so I think that's my methodology is like getting people like getting the biggest bang for their buck in terms of time because obviously a lot of people have jobs and so it fits quite well with kind of cross racing only being yeah half an hour 40 minutes even an hour for elites so it does work in terms of like the time constraint in cyclist really and so i think people people are surprised at how good they can get off off limited hours which kind of something almost almost like specializing if you want to want to say that that's your thing i was just going to ask you actually i mean i think um you know obviously i've had a few coaches on the podcast and 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 different platforms and stuff over the years and, and i think that it's all about the individual what works right for them and finding that relationship i think that's the kind of key thing what what do you specialize more in in cross or road or what what how would you describe yourself as uh, as a sort of coaching offering yeah how would you sum it up I would say, yeah, I definitely specialise in cross as such, but I think Woot and Matthew are a great advertisement for yes, training exactly, like yeah. a cross rider and racing up the road. So I actually coach Graham Briggs, who's obviously, yeah, for many years was a pro on the road, but now he's got his own kids kids coaching venture with Clancy Briggs. So I still coach him. So yeah, I, I definitely coach road riders as well. And I think... A lot of people first come to me wanting cross training and then quickly realize that you might call it cross training, but fundamentally it's riding a bike and they get results. And so they stick with me for for any other discipline that they want to do, really, whether that's road or mountain biking. Obviously, I've got the experience with the mountain biking as well. But yeah, raced, raced on the road as well. And I think yeah I think my big thing is using kind of like the ideas of training for cross on the road and yeah people get results from it very good and in terms of the sort of level of athlete that you tend to coach are you open to the whole spectrum yeah very much so so I have a right right spectrum on the go at the moment from pros to yeah to people who have families and and full-time jobs and and they only train kind of four or five hours a week but they want to get the most out of it and they want that kind of person to feed back to they want the yeah accountability of someone so a lot of people say to me I'm so much more likely to to do it if I've kind of been set it by someone else so um that's a big thing like a coach coach a good friend and he know he knows what he's doing and I'm sure he could set a plan himself but he said he's so much more likely to kind of skip sessions and move stuff around when he's set it whereas when I've set it he's like well I've got to do it because it's been set like so it's having that accountability and having that clear plan that I think a lot of people a lot of people enjoy and and get the most out of it and to bounce ideas off as well right sometimes yeah 
Absolutely. I think that I think a lot of people could plan their own training, but they don't have the confidence in it. And if you if you don't have the confidence in a plan, you're not going to execute it to kind of the the highest degree which you need to really. So yeah, even yeah, answering questions about sessions like why why am I doing this? What benefit I'm going to get? So being able to answer that and and give people that confidence and yeah that reassurance really that they're doing the right thing yeah that's so true and and going on to sort of cyclocross and mountain bike for people listening that may have been sort of predominantly road or just road riders for the number of years and they're curious given the fact they may have lost the summer to any racing during the summer or they're just curious about cross or mountain bike and how would you suggest that people look into changing disciplines and what kind of skills should they be thinking about working on what what's your just general view on getting out there and trying different things well I think it's exactly that you've just got to get out there and try it and I think the best way of learning is by doing it just yeah get a cheap cross bike or a cheap mountain bike and and head to your local trail center if you've got one or your local woods and start off just riding fire roads and and just getting the idea of how how a bike handles off road like you can so there's local to me down in down in kent there's a local trail center called bedgebury and Yes, from a mountain biking point of view, it's not the most technical places to go. But if you add in some speed, then suddenly the the most simple of corners becomes tricky and you need the correct technique to get around it fast. And, and just little things like that, like you add in speed to anything and and suddenly becomes technical. It's like when people talk about technical road descents. Like in terms of a mountain biking technical, it's, it's not technical at all. Like a granny could ride down a mountain descent. Um, it's not technical, but as soon as you throw speed into it, then it's a whole different ball game. So I think, yeah, just getting off road and riding simple trails to begin with and, and understanding how the bike moves around underneath you and, and kind of grip levels and, and, and how to get grip out of the bike in terms of your kind of body weight and position on the bike and just get to used to pedaling off-road i think that's a big thing that a lot of people struggle with who have never ridden off-road is getting the power out actually over bumpy ground and having that smooth pedaling technique and and a real good power kind of application on the pedals to to move fast across rough ground that's great and going on to cross again in terms of the growth of the sport how would you like to see it grow over the next few years and and do you think that riders like Walt and Matthew will will increase just sort of general interest around the world in cross I would love to see in terms of a UK thing like we we have the numbers we have massive numbers week in week out at local local cross so I would love to see kind of those stand out kind of junior riders stick with it and do what kind of Tom Pidcock's done and begin to make your name in in the cross scene and and kind of break into the road that way I used to live near him and his dad asked me I think when he was like a first year junior what I thought he should do and I said 100% stay with cross because it's so much easier to make your name from those 30 or 40 pro guys in Belgium like it's so much easier to stand out as opposed to going onto the road as like maybe a stagiaire and trying to stand out I don't know how many pros there are on the road there must be over 200 300 maybe like to try and stand out in that as a first year like you haven't got no chance but you need to be an even a pole like you, you need to be absolutely incredible to stand out in in the pro peloton so i think making your name off road in in the cross scene is not necessarily easier but if you've got the talent you're going to get noticed and by Matthew and Woot doing what they've done they've given that pathway even more kind of legitimacy and I think with 
Tom now as well doing that, then I think it's going to be perhaps easier for for people to go down that route in the future. And I would love to see more pros in the UK racing racing cross and, and being able to be pro at uh, cross. I mean, for years there, I was the only male being paid to race cross, which in one way was good, but in another way, like I'd just love to see more more people be able to pursue cross as their as their job. And yeah, if they love it that much, then they get to do it, which which is pretty. Well, I get the experiences that you've been lucky enough to have with it. I suppose is part well, of it. And yeah, exactly, exactly. And going full circle back, which would probably wrap things up quite soon. But I mean, I was always fascinated to to read that you started at school. I mean, I think cross is something that schools potentially could do. Do you not think that there should be be great to see more of a focus at a school level? Yeah, I think like I say to kids and parents all the time, like just get them a cross bike because you can throw road wheels in it if you want and go for a road ride. But it's such a safe like good way to get into like a real basic form of racing i mean there's no real tactics you just set off and then it's first across the line wins and if you fall off you fall off and nine times out of ten it's on on a bit of grass that isn't really going to hurt you learn no traffic to worry about no exactly you learn to ride a bike properly like in terms of the kind of tackling hills yeah. and yeah, it's just a great way. And I would love to see it in schools. And I had meetings with our local council, actually, at the beginning of lockdown, uh, well, before lockdown, unfortunately. And I was talking to them about perhaps doing like a kids club at some local schools. And they were partly interested. But at the same time, British Cycling have their have their schemes in place for schools. And there's the whole uh, like cycling proficiency, which has been renamed now. And I was saying to them, like, that's the last thing we should be teaching kids is to how to ride on the road. We should be getting them to fall in love with riding their bikes first. And then yeah. if they want to ride on the road, we can teach them that. But throwing them onto the road, at, when do you do cycling proficiency? When you're nine or 10? Like, yeah, as a nine, ten-year-old, like I was a very confident cyclist, but I still didn't want to ride on the road, and I loved riding my bike. So, yeah, if you don't particularly like riding a bike, then being thrown onto the road in that situation, then I think that might put a lot of people off. So, I think yeah, I agree, and that's kind of why I think with you know that you can set up a cross course with relatively small amount of space, right? And unless you're an inner city school, I'm sure there's somewhere you can put some uh, some tape and markers around and build a little course and that's a great way to get kids sort of competing and getting outside and doing exercise and yeah I think it would be a really interesting way is that how it is in Belgium and do they I mean do they start do they, is there cross at school do they start doing it very young or is it a club thing there it's very much a club thing but if you are a cyclist then I think like Wednesday afternoons are like sport afternoons in Belgium and if you're a yeah. cyclist you will get you you you'll be allowed to like go out on your bike and and do cross and and stuff like that and go training so i think that's that's a big thing and actually something that our school allowed me and my friend to do in sixth form was instead of pe we got to go for bike rides on a wednesday afternoon which was pretty cool i don't know if they should have been allowing us to doing that but yeah it was something that really let us pursue kind of our dreams and i think it's something that perhaps we need to look at in the uk of of getting a better kind of cycling on the curriculum rather than cycling proficiency yeah exactly that's what i was thinking well there you go that's your that's your mission now yeah i know <laughs> i can ask you with that mission i'll take Excellent. that Look, we should probably wrap things up before we go where's your favorite place in the world to cycle oh probably andorra ah. 
Interesting. We've not yeah. had that one yet. Yeah, <laughs> oh, spectacular really? part of the world. Oh, okay. I've got a couple of friends who live there and I've been out there a fair bit and the roads are just amazing and the mountain biking is incredible and it's all in a beautiful little country like hidden away in the mountains basically it's just a great place to go the weather's pretty good yeah it's pretty incredible yeah amazing cool that's another place on the list Ian thank you so much for taking the time to join me and have a chat we can put your contact details in the show notes if anyone's interested or got any questions around coaching or anything else or getting cycling into schools they can drop you a line yeah certainly can yeah have I missed anything? Is there anything else you wanted to mention? I think we've pretty much covered everything. <laughs> a lot, right? Yeah, it's been yeah, good. Yeah. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for taking the time and, and we'll catch, stay in touch, yeah? And we'll catch up soon. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks very much for having me. Good man. Cheers, in. Thanks. Cheers, bye. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast. And more importantly, don't forget to download the Unfound app and join cyclists from around the world on the hub. We'll see you on there.